becomes like a fleeting memory. Whatever you grab just turns to dust. Like eye contact with a stranger straight around the corner. It's a dream that you get to make real. Is this tonight about answers? We have all the answers now? We've got so many answers. Yeah. Totally. Let's just, let's tie some things together. Okay. Okay. <laughs> let's attempt. To attempt. To the shores. To the shores. <laughs> to the attempt. <laughs> I love attempts. I too. Because if you don't attempt, you don't know, you know, if you're going to fail or succeed or somewhere in between. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I had to suppress a dad joke in my oh, head, nice. um, which I've noticed that the dad jokes are becoming harder and harder to, to suppress. <laughs> I think I've full on like given up. You've given up. You've yeah. embraced it. <clears throat> I mean, I've, I've really done a good Embrace job the of dad. Not, <laughs> not tickling my employees. <laughs> yeah, that'd be awkward. I know. You should definitely not tickle your employees. <laughs> what? Where are we going? Well, I didn't see that coming. Yeah. No, it's just funny, like, because that when it, when I if I get silly, it's sort of like I mean, not like like actually tickled, but like, well, maybe, maybe, but like, no, no, no. <laughs> like, has this been a problem in the past? <laughs> well, you know, it's like, like, you know, my, you know, I can't, I can't pick up my my employee and throw him in the air and ah, oh, like that or something like that. Yeah, but it's like kind of more in the spirit of that kind of like dad. Ness, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, oh no, you work for me, and there's like a certain decorum. The spirit here. of dadness. <laughs> uh, All right, well, let's get into some things. All right, let's I feel it. like there's about a thousand things to talk about. Yeah, for sure. I mean, uh, just our our last podcast of like, you know, we just brought up so many questions we have had or have about just so many things in the world, and you know, narratives and dialogues and the way things are presented, and some somewhat. In a, in a binary way of we're for Ukraine or for Russia or, you know, all of, you know, we've just seen a lot of that over the last couple of years with, you know, whether it be vaccines or COVID, wearing masks or no mask. It's, it's like you're either in or you're out. Mm-hmm. And, and the, so I think a lot of things we were kind of bringing up last on the last episode was just like, was what are these? What the, we have some questions about these things, and some of them are founded, and some of them are not. But if we don't ask the question, then how will we know what's founded and what's not founded? Yeah. So we'll probably we'll maybe scratch <clears> on a few <throat> of those still now. <laughs> yeah, the thing that I kept thinking about after the last conversation <clears throat> in episode one hundred and nine was uh, this idea of like if you're incompetent, how else do you become competent? Mm-hmm. besides asking questions seems like the best way well i mean there's there's a way that is is somewhat of a the the media narrative is the only way that you become competent is when you can recite what we have told you but that's not competence well again not actual competence mm-hmm. but that's what is collectively accepted as competence is if you can well, I don't know if it, if it, you could say that it's accepted as competence, but you can certainly say that it's accepted as sufficient. And anything beyond that is probably dangerous. So mm-hmm. go with sufficient. You you should be able to sufficiently live your life by submitting yourself to 
the opinions of the authorities and the experts. Mm-hmm. Or our, our The ones claimed to be competent. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think maybe it's just a semantic thing. Cause I don't think it's actual competence. You know, it's... Right. But, but the way that you show your competence <clears throat> in this in that space is by being able to have a handle of how the media narrative or whatever side you're on that you can explain it in a way that is in line with the, with their thinking, Mm. whoever they are, you know? Right. Which again, isn't competence. It's Mm. just fealty. Exactly. Yeah. But it's being paraded as competence, you Mm. know? Yeah. I don't know. This still doesn't seem right to me. Do you think it is being paraded as competence or simple, simple, um, righteousness well, I guess that it'd be like uh, it'd be whether you're speaking to the more religious aspects of you know politics and and uh, or if you're talking to talking about the you know like hmm, I see what you're saying or you could say morality maybe that's a well, I said, is it competence being paraded as competence or being paraded as simple righteousness? Maybe what I meant to say is simple morality. Like you're, you're a good person, a moral person, mm-hmm. so long as you signal fealty to the preferred narrative. Mm-hmm. You don't need to understand it. You don't need to be able to even act it out for yourself, which I think would be competence. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, you simply need to signal that you're on the right side. Mm-hmm. Of of these contentious um, disagreements, let's say, yeah. And so long as you're on the right side, it actually doesn't matter too much what you do. Mm-hmm. So long as you signal that you're on the side, yeah, the side of the good people, the side of the morality. Yeah, you make the the green grocer aspect of putting the sign in your window, whether you believe it or not. But everyone puts the sign in their window, mm-hmm. and therefore, you know. You've signaled that you're on the right side. Right. And the signaling is more important than any actual doing. Mm-hmm. Or the meaning of or whatever even believing. Is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Totally. <clears throat> well, something I, I wanted to maybe try to do in this, this episode is, you know, I think one of the, one of the things that you and I are always looking for, or at least we get excited when we find is when, ideas and concepts reemerge and connect and like reconnect to previous questions we were asking or previous conversations that we've had. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple things that came up for me this week that had that aspect to them. It's like, Oh, this, this is recapitulating this other idea that we were playing with two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Um, so maybe we could run through a couple of those and see where it takes us. Okay. Um, the first one is this idea of survivorship bias. I heard this story this week. Um, I think it was like an Instagram post. Somebody told this story and I thought it was really, really interesting. So I'll, I'll kick it off. I'll tell, retell the story and mm-hmm. we'll uh, talk about what it connects with and why it may or may not be interesting. <laughs> um, so the story was, and I, I won't get the details exactly right, but the, the principle is what matters here. Story was that in in World War II, I think a group of engineers in the UK were trying to figure out how they could add armor to their airplanes in order to to better protect them. 
The problem with adding armor to airplanes is armor is very heavy, and airplanes obviously need to be as light as possible to perform well. And so what they did, these engineers, is they started looking at all of their planes and where they had sustained bullet damage, where there were bullet holes in the planes. And so you look at a bunch of different planes and you say, wow, there's a lot of bullet holes that are aggregating in the back of the fuselage here. We should probably armor that area. And then um, apparently one of the engineers, and I, the story includes his name. Apparently he's a known person. I don't remember his name, but he basically pointed out, actually, we should put the armor where the bullet holes aren't because the planes that made it home got shot where these bullets are. The planes that didn't make it home presumably got shot where these bullets aren't. Mm -hmm. So we're biasing our understanding of what the data is telling us based on the fact that we're only sampling the planes that survived mm -hmm. and forgetting that all the ones that got shot down, which is the thing we're trying to prevent likely don't have the same set of bullet holes because that's why they got shot down. Mm -hmm. And I thought this is so fascinating because it's so easy to, to hear the first part of that story and go, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. These planes have a bunch of bullet holes. We don't like bullet holes because they bring planes down. So we should armor them where the bullet holes are and then they won't have bullet holes there and that'll solve the problem. The problem is the sample set that you used was all the planes that didn't get shot down in the first place. So you mm -hmm. didn't actually solve any problem at all yeah. other than to add <clears throat> armor add weight to these airplanes. And I thought, it's like, what other things in our life seem to make logical sense, but we're, we're making that crucial type two error of sampling bias, in this case, survivorship bias. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that it made me think about is the conversation we've had, I don't know, over the last couple of episodes, just about data and story and narrative. And this is a great example of how data is really important and really powerful and is some indication of what is true. But by itself, data can't tell you what to do. It can't tell you its own value. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> you have to be telling a story in which that data ends up being useful. So in this case, the story is we want less planes to get shot down. So what is the data telling us about that? And in the beginning of the story, while well, we read the data wrong, we look at the data different and we can use that to support a change or a path within a story to make a change. Mm -hmm. But by itself, without interpretation within the construct of a story, it's, re it's really rather meaningless. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, there's a, there's a lot in this. Like it's so hard not to take this into the COVID area, but I'm tired of talking COVID. <laughs> Go for it. Well, I mean, we've kind of, we have talked about this quite a few times, but you know, it's like you do need data and it's, it's just, it's so important, but how you tell a story is equally as valuable. Right. And then whether that represents reality, that's the real test. You know, it's like, here's the data. Here's how I interpret the data. But, and I'm telling you the story. But does that really represent reality? And that's, just, that's something we have to continue to measure. It's like anytime we interpret data and tell a story, it's like, 
the next question is and should always be does that represent reality it's not like we're done because mm-hmm. it not only has to represent reality today but it has to represent reality tomorrow i mean it's even kind of behind the statement like the science has changed you know in it's in it's I don't even know how we can even use that statement anymore and be taken seriously. Hmm. Cause it's not the science didn't change is our interpretation of the science changed or more data, you know, allowed us to see a different picture, you know? Yeah. I think so I that's know. what people are. I think that's what's intended to be meant when people say the science changed yeah. is, well, we've gathered more data and the picture has changed. Mm-hmm. Our understanding has changed. And that's an appeal to the fundamental, like, um, <clears throat> the fundamental power of the scientific method itself. Mm-hmm. So it's a proper appeal. Yeah. But it's, I think it's being used so often <clears throat> in the COVID thing to justify an arbitrary change of mind mm-hmm. or a politically motivated change of mind. Yeah. And, I think we know that even though we're not, even though we may not, some people may not be willing to admit that that's true mm-hmm. or even see or want to see that that's true. And just saying the science has changed is a simple enough um, sort of digestif to the problem where it's like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I'm now comfortable. Mm-hmm. But it, it, it is one of those phrases that started to sound like a farce or mm-hmm. like a punchline in an SNL skit or something. <laughs> <It's you know? laughs> uh-huh. We all know there's something not quite right about it. And it's pointing to something different than some, some empirical statement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm almost going to even take that statement seriously anymore. Yeah. And it's kind of lost. It's lost. It's lust, I guess, you know, it's, it's luster, kind of luster, <laughs> lost is lust, a lustful statement. <laughs> the science has changed, baby. Oh, oh. talk dirty to me. <laughs> That's not good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, I think that's, I tend to believe like a, a lot of us are really tired of the politics you know, I, I've heard this one statement that like we need to get experts of fields into politics. Hmm. And I don't know if I agree with that necessarily. <clears throat> like, you know, we need to get engineers and um, architects and scientists and all these things into positions of representatives and congressmen and women and um, president and, you know, all the different government spaces it's not that they can't be architects and engineers and lawyers or whatever. A lot of them are lawyers actually. Um, but there's something that is, I think with being a politician, it's being able to bring people together and not, it's not necessarily true of a, of someone who might be a engineer is able to bring people to some sort of, common common ground or or to be able to communicate in a way that's effective to the people like i think that's why politics is different from science or something like that or Hmm. building a plane 
because you're trying to build i mean i think that's part of what i mean i'm, I'm thinking more in the the true nature of, of maybe what politics is intended to be mm-hmm. is the sort of discussion and and bringing a consensus of your not only communicating the consensus of your constituents that you represent but then also among your fellow congress people to bring them into a consensus to do what is best for the American people or for Texas or for a city of Austin or whoever you're representing, you know? So that's a different skill set than to being able to build a plane. You know, it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't mean a person who can build a plane shouldn't be a politician. So, so that, that I think Eric Weinstein had kind of talked about that. And I was just like, well, I don't know. I mean, it's a different skill set. I think we just need better politicians. <laughs> <clears throat> so you're saying you disagree? I do disagree. I do disagree. And not, not that to exclude those things, but that doesn't have to, it shouldn't necessarily include those things as far as engineers and tech, technical aspects of um, how the world works, you know? Hmm. So I'm going to borrow an idea from Heather Hying, mm-hmm. which is that there's actually something really important <clears throat> about engaging in a discipline or a skill in which you are confronted with the world in a way that you can't lie to it. So to use the building planes, for example, it's like you can design a really beautiful plane. Mm-hmm. You can even design it and build the schematics for it in a way that the math all works out. Theoretically, abstractly, this is the perfect plane. Mm -hmm. But then when you go build it and fly it, none of that matters. Hmm. The only thing that matters is does it fall from the sky or not? (laughs) Like at that point, once you're trying to fly the plane that you've built, Mm -hmm. you can't tell a lie about your ability to build a plane the real world doesn't give a shit about what you have to say about that. Hmm. The real world is going, it's either the plane's going to fly in the real world or it's not. Mm-hmm. And she makes the point that it's actually really important. Um, I'm not sure if she says it this way, but there is wisdom to be gained by engaging in activities in which you can't lie to them. She uses the example, I think of <clears throat> this, some statue that she walked by this very accomplished man. I think he actually was a politician Mm -hmm. and she noted that on the plaque at the bottom, it listed out, you know, all the things that he did and who he was. But the first thing that it said was that he was a welder and she was remarking how important that was that it's one thing to be able to talk pretty and talk nice. It's, it's one thing to be able to make a claim to something and support that and convince people about that. It's another thing to actually do something and it work mm. in the real world. Yeah. And so, you know, for all of those reasons, I would say I kind of want, you know, people who have done things in the real world in politics because oh, gotcha. they <clears throat> understand something of the world they're attempting to govern, mm. you know, and with somebody like... I mean, Bernie Sanders or something like that. Well, I was going to say Joe Biden. Yeah. I mean, Biden's been in politics his whole life. Is he what? Like? 60 years. Mm-hmm. Like, what does he know about the world? I'm not saying he doesn't know very much. I'm just saying he doesn't know 
at all what it is to live like almost anybody that mm. he's governing. And that seems problematic. I mean, mm. you're disconnected. Um, now, I actually feel that quite a lot raising my kids right now because my kids are at the age where they're starting to say to me, like, you know, dad, you don't understand. You don't know anything about what I'm going through. Mm. And it's funny because we all say that to our parents as we're growing up and then we get older and we're like, actually, they knew. <laughs> they knew. Uh-huh. Um, <coughs> but there's something different going on here in that my kids are growing up in a world that is extraordinarily different than the world that I grew up in. Mm -hmm. And in a very real sense, I think they're right. I really don't understand Mm. so much of the world that they live in, even though I live in that world too. I don't know what it's like to live in that world as a 13 year old Mm. or as a 15 year old. Um, And so I think in some sense, you know, we can all sort of look at Joe Biden and say like, you don't understand. You've got all the advisors, you're a smart guy, you know, you, you, you have good intentions and, you know, plausibly good ideas. You know, they sound good. You can make a good case. You obviously convinced over half the country, Mm -hmm. but what happens when you engage in the real world? Do these ideas fly? Mm -hmm. Um, and what do you really understand? I mean, this is why I think, um, you know, maybe the working class has been so romanticized in our culture Mm -hmm. is that the working class understands something about what it means to live in a way that perhaps the very rich, let's say don't Mm -hmm. because they just don't engage with the same problems. Yeah, that makes sense. So in that sense, I would say it's like, I want politicians to have experience with this is where it's hard to describe. I want to say have experience with real problems, but that's not exactly it. Mm -hmm. It's like, hands-on experience live <laughs> lived experience <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> to use another overwrought term but yeah but then again i also don't want all of our engineers going into politics i want engineers and scientists to be protected from politics mm-hmm. like it's fine if they <clears throat> want to go into politics but generally i people are doing engineering and science Politics meddling in what they do is the worst thing that I can, that's a strong way to say it, the worst <laughs> thing I can think of. I can think of worse things than that, but for that field, mm-hmm. like you don't want the story weavers coming in and lying about what it is that you're trying to accomplish. You want to be as unbiased as possible. If you're trying to figure out what's real, mm-hmm. if you're trying to understand the world, you yeah. need to be unbiased. Yeah, it doesn't care, care about your political party. Yeah, I mean, that's the whole point of the scientific method is mm-hmm. to tr- figure out how to remove bias so that you can understand what's real mm-hmm. and not just what you want to be real. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess when I was, when I was I, as you paint that picture, I, I totally, I think I really do agree with that. Like career politicians, I don't, I don't think is a, should be a thing. <clears throat> I was just, I guess when in my mind, whenever I was picturing that was sort of like taking to some engineer that is not, you know, might be technically okay, but can't communicate to people about why it's okay or how, or why they should head in that direction. Right. I mean, they they are two different skill sets. Mm -hmm. 
Another point to make to that end is that I think this is why traditionally we've always really championed politicians who were previously uh, service members, mm. like in the military, mm-hmm. because they have some very direct, real contact with life yeah. and death. And specifically war. Yeah. And specifically war. Mm-hmm. Right. Which kind of makes sense to me. I, I can kind of, because I remember growing up and I don't know who it was that didn't have war or wasn't in the military. Was Reagan in the military? Anyways, but I remember that being a thing is like, they don't understand because they've never, they've never been to war or they weren't mm-hmm. in the military. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I have a memory of that making sense to me when I was a kid. It's like, yeah, you don't know. I love that. I have a memory of that making sense. I'm not saying it does now. I'm not claiming that. Well, it's like I don't want. You know, it's like I it just can. I just can kind of like have that. Yeah. Headspace of like where I was like, oh yeah, you need to understand that. Yeah. Because like, you know, when your life's in danger, it's like, it's like you can't. You can probably you can, you can kind of put yourself in that situation, but it's definitely different if you've actually experienced it. Mm-hmm. And have and knowing the consequence of sending soldiers overseas to defend, you know, something that is this worth it? Is that in you know, you as a soldier having gone over and done that, you'd be like, that one's not worth it, this one is worth it, and maybe be able to distinguish between that better, you know. Yeah. That's the idea anyways. <clears throat> but yeah, as far as experience goes, I mean, yeah, for our politicians should have some sort of real life experience as far as building something. Mm-hmm. Whether it be a business, running a law firm, you know, um, you know, just working, working in the world that, you know, it's like, it's so funny. It's like, uh, I forgot how it was said, but like they were giving shit to Elon Musk about all this stuff. And it's like, well, you've been actually feeding off the government teat for your entire career. You know, it's like, it's like, we've been paying your salary the whole time. It's like, you haven't, you haven't really done anything yourself. You mm-hmm. know, like Elon was saying that to a politician. Yeah. I think it was like Warren, <clears throat> Warren, but yeah. uh, Warren Buffett, uh, Elizabeth Warren. Oh, back in the days when Elon and Elizabeth Warren were <laughs> totally. Twitter battling. Uh-huh. That was a fun time. Mm-hmm. It was like, what a month ago. It seems <laughs> yeah, like years totally ago. It does seem like years ago. But I mean, there's so many things. I mean, even with that, like, like here's Elon who has, you know, invested like twice of what Ford and was it Chevrolet have into electric cars. You know, it's like, and he's not mentioned at all in any of these places, but Biden, you know, completely like just excludes him from any sort of mention of this whole, you know, electric car thing. And he's like one of the the leaders and he's Mm -hmm. a U.S. citizen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's like, what is that? Yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of taking us off into a different direction there with that. There's more of a beef I have. (laughs) (laughs) It just seems like simple playground antics. It does. You can't sit with us at our table. Yeah. Because we don't like you right now. Mm -hmm. You you have a crush on my best friend's crush. You don't get to sit at this table (laughs) or like whatever it is, you know. Uh I think Elon and Elizabeth Warren were going at it and so... Biden didn't include him in his little speech. I mean, it's all very trite. Well, just even just thinking about this whole political politics in general, you know, again, I think there's a lot of good people in politics that are Congress people and, you know, state and national level. 
Um, but it is kind of funny though. We just had like a reality TV star as a president. And then also uh, the Zelensky guy. What was that story by him? He was like in a movie about being a president. Vla- Vla- <clears throat> is it is his first name Vladimir? Vlad- Vladimir Zelensky. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that was so funny. <laughs> the president of Ukraine. Yeah. yeah. He got his start in comedy when he was like 17. And then he got into acting. And from 2014 to 2019, he his main job in this world was he was a celebrity. He was an actor mm-hmm. on a show. And on the show, he played the president of Ukraine on the show. And it was a very popular show, apparently. And then in 2019, the writers of that show formed a brand new, in real life political party. And Zelensky ran for president of Ukraine in real life on this new political party made by the writers of the show and won. And so transitioned from being president on TV to president in real life yeah, with the aid of his writers. <laughs> and, he, and that's just wild to me. Well, it's funny. It's like, it doesn't make it like whether he's a good president or bad it president. Says it says nothing about that, about but that. it's like, <laughs> there is something suspect about it though. Uh-huh. Doesn't it feel that way? Like, yeah. wait, did, but so wait, did you win because you're at, you have the qualifications or you're a good president or we really liked you on the show and the writers you have are really good at giving you a platform in real life. <laughs> yeah. It'd be like uh, Robin Williams and man of the year, you know, who uh, ran for president and won. He was a com- com- comedian. Oh my gosh. It's almost like exactly like what happened. Yeah. yeah. Robin Williams was a comedian on the show, man of the year. And he ran for president. And he actually ended up getting it, and there, there, you know there, there was a twist at the end. But like, uh, it would be like Robert Williams running for president and then actually becoming president. Right. <laughs> strange things. It is strange. I mean, I mean, you could probably argue too. It's like by having acted it out that you've gone through all these different scenarios that that actually could be like could be highly beneficial. Highly beneficial. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, actually, I could probably I could probably make a case, a very strong case, that that is actually a, a good con, uh, good testing ground practice. At <laughs> practice, least. at least, yeah. What was that show with Kiefer Sutherland, Designated Survivor? Uh huh. Yeah. It's like I, you know what? I'd probably vote for him for president. <laughs> I, <knew. laughs> I saw him on that show, and he was a badass. Or even like you know, I would probably vote for The Rock, but just. Anyways, but him, him running for president, you know, it's like, well, I, that, I, mean, I like heard, all his characters. I've you know? heard so many people say that they would vote for the rock. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it's an actual possibility that he runs and an actual possibility that he would win. But isn't that funny? Because none of us know his politics. Mm-hmm. None of us have any idea whether or not he'd be good at being president. Yeah. We just know that we, that he's very endearing and charming mm-hmm. and I love him yeah. in everything he's in. <laughs> totally. And then even off camera, he's a delight mm-hmm. and completely positive. And it's like, yeah, I'd vote for him. We don't vote for people based on, I mean, <laughs> politics, politics is a popularity contest. Mm-hmm. It's all it is. I, it's, no, it's like, yeah, it's but, a strong claim, but it, it, it surprises me, you know, mm-hmm. as important as we all sort of behave as if it's life and death important who gets elected, you know, when these politicians come up, Trump and Biden or Trump and Hillary or whatever, mm-hmm. this is life. You have life and death in your hands in this decision. Mm-hmm. And we're all just like, I'd vote for the rock though. <laughs> <laughs> He's strong. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
you know, I, but again, you know, if you're like me, most of the time it's like when I'm voting for somebody for president, it's sort of like the lesser of two evils. That's kind of how I feel most of the time. Like, I don't feel like I've ever been like super excited about voting for one candidate or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, maybe they're like, maybe if you ran for president, I'd be uh, super excited about voting for you. Me? Yeah. Oh, wow. Thank you. <laughs> then I would expose you in all of our podcasting. <laughs> well, did you listen to episode 49? You get a <laughs> ton of clout for canceling me. You have so, so much dirt. I would like, start taking clips out of all of them, taking them out of context. Yeah. <laughs> you mean you'd finally get around to taking clips yes. of our podcast? <laughs> so true. <laughs> I've got like hours and hours of our content on video that is just sitting there that no one will ever see. No, it'll be in the archives. We'll like, we'll put them out as NFTs when we're rich and famous and <laughs> sell them. <laughs> but we won't have an audience and but no one will know. No, we'll be millionaires. Nobody want to, you know, oh, just cause everybody will. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, you want to shift subjects? Let's do it. Yeah. Away from politics. Oh, and, God, yeah. Um, the subject we said we'd never get into. <laughs> it's just so hard to avoid these days. Well, mm-hmm. I, I, I had um, just a bunch of thoughts around the idea of hope mm. this week, and I'd love to talk about it. Totally. I like it. I don't know exactly how to get into it, but I just had this this eureka moment about the importance of hope in our life, and it really came from a conversation I had with my son, in which he said sort of <laughs> this very teenager-y thing to say. And I, we were in a, in the midst of a fairly contentious conversation, almost an argument, probably an argument. And he asked me some question and my response was, I really hope so. And he basically said, fuck your hope. I'm adding the curse word. I don't think he said that (laughs) part, but you know, just like what, what good is hope? Like we're trying to solve a problem. And in a really real sense, he was kind of right in, in one way. Because I think we toss around the idea of hope, or at least generally think about it as if you're sort of making a wish. Like, wouldn't that be good? Hmm. And I was thinking about that. Um, well, re- well, first, my response to him when he said that, whatever it was that he said, you know, just screw your hope. Or My response was, I think hope is exactly what we need to solve this problem, mm-hmm. essentially. And I was thinking for a long time about why that is. And this is another one of those things that seem to tie a bunch of different ideas together. Um, one of which being uh, this thing that we kind of got into, I think towards the end of the conversation, I don't know, in 107 or 108, but mm. this, this idea that rules are arbitrary. And so I want to try to pull that together. Mm-hmm. I'm going to need your help though. I don't know how much of this is going to make <laughs> sense. Um, So I was thinking, well, there's a difference between hope and a wish. Mm-hmm. You know, a wish is sort of this, wouldn't it be nice? I wish for world peace, you know, something like that. Or you I wish say, they're all California girls. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Uh, they may all be soon. They're all coming here. That's true. <laughs> um, whereas what is hope? And I think that hope is, well, 
maybe I can't give the answer without walking through the thoughts. So I think that there's something about hope that involves decision-making and sacrifice. So if you're trying to, if you're looking forward to something, let's say, or you want something, mm -hmm. and let's use a very sort of simple example. Maybe you're always late in the morning and you don't want to be late anymore. And so you say, okay, I don't want to be late anymore. You are suddenly that statement, if you make it sincerely and you really mean it, <clears throat> you are suddenly decomposing all of the time between where you stand when you say that and then when that end result is tested, whether or not you're late to work in the morning, let's say. Mm -hmm. Because all of a sudden everything between you and that is now aligned with that goal. Mm -hmm. So, you know, in some sort of vacuum, you might make it till 11 PM one night and be like, my mind's racing. I'm not tired. It's a bunch of stuff to do around the house that I haven't done that I really want to do. I don't really feel like going to bed, you know? And so if you evaluate your decision about when to go to bed, it's really hard to decide whether you go to bed or not. But if you say, well, it's really important to me that I change this aspect and get to work on time tomorrow, all of a sudden it's not hard to decide whether or not you should go to bed. Mm -hmm. Whether or not you do is another thing, but within the context of the thing you want in the future, your decision about how to behave now, well, it's not much of a decision. It's mm. like, if I want this in the morning, then I know I have to go to bed now. Mm. And so you sacrifice all of these other things. You sacrifice the fact that you're not tired, that your mind's racing, that there's unfinished business in the house, all of these other things. You say, those things matter less to me than this thing that I want in the morning, which is to be on time. Mm. <clears throat> and you go to bed. Yeah. Well, did you solve getting to work on time? No, we haven't gotten to that yet, but you have sacrificed a bunch of things in the hope that that decision will help the thing that you want emerge as reality. Mm -hmm. And in some sense, the hope is the waiting. Mm. The hope is the space between the decision that was informed by the thing that you hope for and also helps bring forth the manifestation of the thing that you hope for. It's almost like a wish doesn't include action. It's sort of like, I wish this would happen. It's sort of like, uh, I this magically appear where hope is something that there's a goal to attain. And I'm going to take steps towards that goal in hope that I attain that goal. But that's a, that's hope. That's a wish would be like, you're not taking steps towards that goal. It's just a kind of, you wish it would happen. Like, uh, like, man, I wish I had a million dollars. Well, that's nice, but hope, you know, it's like, I hope tomorrow or I hope next year I could have a million dollars in order to start a company to do these certain things. Okay. That's something I want to do. I need to start taking steps in that direction in order to, to put myself in a, in a place where that could be accomplished, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that... Is that kind of, do you kind of see that? I, I, or that's kind of what I was picking up from what you were saying. It was like, I, I felt like with hope, it's like you kind of shift your focus and your attention 
to how can I, how can I make this happen? But you can't just make it happen. It's not something like, well, if I do A, B and C and D, then hope A will work out. It's more of like, if I do A, B and C, it is possible that I will get closer to the thing that I hope for. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe there's like within, within a simplistic uh, example, like the one I gave about being late and going to bed on time, it's easy enough to lay out a deterministic argument for the accomplishing of that goal. Mm -hmm. The, the, the point I'm trying to make is, is the co-joining with the, the reciprocal relationship between hope and the behavior that evidences the belief in that hope and the actual accomplishing or it's like, I don't want to say accomplishing. I want to say manifesting, but I, manifesting has this very, um, what's the word? Spiritual kind of thing attached to it. Mm. <clears throat> so <clears throat> if you hope for something, if you hope for something and don't do anything about it, that's more like a wish. Mm-hmm. If you hope for something and you believe in that hope, then that will be evident in the way that you behave. Hmm. Because I can't say I hope to make it to work on time in the morning and then stay up till 3 a.m. playing video games. Mm -hmm. That makes me a liar. I don't actually hope for that. Mm -hmm. I may want it, but I don't hope for it because otherwise I would be behaving differently. Mm -hmm. And so I think when you hope for something, it... It, it, and, and truly hope for it. It aligns your life toward that thing necessarily. What's interesting too, like when you think of like hope in this sort of context, and I know, I know in, the, in some of this, we might be bleeding some ideas together, but just to kind of go with us here, like, you know, if I hope for something and then I don't accomplish it, it's like, okay, what was, what did I do? Like I stay up till 3 a.m., and I overslept my alarm or whatever it might be, you know, it's like, there's a certain disappointment that comes with having hoped for something like actually like a desire for it, not just a wish where like, you know, you just kind of like, Oh, I wish I could wake up in the morning and go to work. You know, it's like, that's kind of like, um, anyways. Um, but there's something about, it's like whenever you don't accomplish that hope that you have, to be on time and to be awake and, and active and in your work. It's like, there's something that kind of shows you have to like reevaluate and change or shift something in order to accomplish what that is. And so I think that's where, where hope is such a valuable thing is it gives us something to aim at and then to reorient ourselves as we sort of like test and approve what helps us get closer to that hope and not that the hope, and then I think also in that instance is like that hope also shifts and changes because as we start to shift and change, it clarifies the hope even more because it's not just to show up to work. Okay. I made it on time at eight o'clock, but I didn't do shit all day. Totally. Well, that's and, not, that's like, that's not showing up to work. That's like, just like you just. <laughs> right. Because <clears throat> even that's embedded in some bigger hope, mm-hmm. like even in the, yeah. the little, little story that we have laid out here, mm-hmm. like it wouldn't make sense for me to say, well, I hope to go to bed on time. Mm-hmm. You'd say, 
well, no, you hope to get to work on time, which is why you're going to bed on time. Mm-hmm. But you don't actually hope to get in work to work on time. It's like you hope to be a productive contributor to the task at hand. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, you get there on time. And in order to do that, you go to bed on time. Mm-hmm. And it isn't even that you want to be a productive contributor. It's that you hope to be financially successful. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can keep pushing that further. It's not even that you want to be financially successful. You want to be the kind of person who is financially successful. Mm. The kind of per, and then you keep going further and further. And mm. this is where hope really actually starts to make more sense. Oh. Hope is the thing that I think aligns us down a path and actually collapses a bunch of super complicated behavior. Mm into very easy decisions. Mm -hmm. And so I want to try to make this tie between hope and decision-making and the comment from a couple of episodes ago that rules are arbitrary because you can say, well, okay, I've got this problem and it's that I, I keep, I'm late to work and it's a problem. And you may not even be able to lay out exactly why it's a problem. You could actually say, well, it's a problem because I might get fired, Mm -hmm. but you're not actually, that's not even the problem. The problem is bigger. Problem is that you don't want to get fired. You want something else that you don't have fully formulated, which is something like, I want to be a good man. And part of being a good man and work that all the way back. Part of being a good man is providing for my family and being financially stable and being a good coworker and, you know, decompose that all the way down to getting to work on time. Um, and so you may set up this rule for yourself and say, well, okay, I'm going to go to bed at 11 PM every night. That's the rule. And so you start, you get very disciplined with it. I'm going to bed at 11 PM, no matter what, Mm -hmm. no matter who I let down, no matter what plans I have to cancel, no matter what's not done today and what problems that's going to present for me to tomorrow. I'm going to live by this rule, 11 PM. Then all of a sudden you're starting to get to work on time. You're starting to be a better contributor. You're starting to be more successful at work. You're starting to feel and look and become more like that person you want to be. And all of a sudden one night you stay up till midnight, but you still get to work on time because you're much more close. You're much closer now to the man that you want to be. And that man is able to get up even if he doesn't follow the previous rule. Mm -hmm. And this is the point at which rules become arbitrary. And this was one of those moments for me where this something, something made sense that we had arrived at via a previous conversation. But I thought, right. The rule was arbitrary. The rule was a part of a larger story that you're trying to tell. Mm -hmm. And as that story manifests its reality, the rule stops mattering. Mm -hmm. The rules matter to the extent that you are not moving toward what it is that you want. Yeah. And I thought, I don't, I don't know if this segue is going to be make a ton of sense, but for some reason I thought about, like the way that we define things and the rules that we make around them. Like we have this rule in our society that, um, well, there are things you can't do unless you're an adult Mm -hmm. be drafted into the military, for example, vote in elections, for example. And so we say, 
we, and this all makes sense to us. Perfect, yeah. makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. Like we shouldn't be sending children to fight our our wars. Mm-hmm. So you have to be an adult to go fight in the war. So we say, okay, you got to be eighteen. It's a rule. It's an important rule mm-hmm. because otherwise, terrible things are going to happen. But it's also incredibly arbitrary because what is an adult? Like, do you become an adult at 18? No. There are plenty of people who are 13 and are far more mature and capable and competent Mm -hmm. than a lot of people in their early 20s. (laughs) You know, so we assign this arbitrary line. But it's a needed line because otherwise it's absolute horrific, perverted chaos. So we have to assign some arbitrary number, which isn't arbitrary exactly because it's within the context of the larger story. And this larger story is there is something, there, there is such a thing as um, like something that's unacceptably unethical, like mm. sending children to fight wars. We, we want to make sure we don't do that. Yeah. And so, and there is such a thing as like, we want to live in a, in a society where our young people become skilled and competent and wise. So there are things we're not going to allow them to do until we, you know, they are of the age where they can't be manipulated unreasonably. Mm-hmm. because of their immaturity. And so we assign this age and, and that works. And does that get, does that, does that get broken? Yes. Like for example, my grandfather lied about his age to go fight in world war two. Mm-hmm. Are we upset about that? No, I, that's something of a hero story. Mm-hmm. So how important is the rule? Yeah. Well, I think that's I think that's the whole that's the hardest thing about sort of the governing aspect of things because you have to make rules and you have to make some sort of arbitrary, you know, lines in the sand that, you know, the person who's born on December thirty first versus January first. How is that person any different from the other? You know, it's like it doesn't it doesn't logically make sense, but you kind of have to like draw these lines in the sand. <clears throat> And I think that's, I think that's hard. And so that's why we have the the system of law that we have to kind of distinguish between, you know, the different stages of murder. We've talked about that before, um, you know, uh, intent versus, you know, mm-hmm. premeditated versus accidental death, you right. know, um, cause these are all the, all those little nuances are very important, but it's still, no matter how, how far you sort of drill down on those differences, there's still an arbitrary aspect to it. And so it, it requires some sort of discernment. It's like almost like the person who is 17, who lied about their age to go to war. I would almost say that they were ready. Mm -hmm. You know, I I think the same thing with business. It's like, uh, something I tell a lot of people is like, they want to start a coffee shop or a business of some sort. And I was like, no, you don't. <laughs> you know, it's like basically like the way I. Well, yeah, because if you did, mm-hmm. you already would have. Yeah. Like if you if you really wanted it, it would be evident. And well, so if it's not evident, then you don't really want it. Well, that's the thing is like it's like if I can't convince you not to start 
your business, then you're ready. <laughs> because like that's what it takes. Is like yeah, you know, you have to want to do this. Because you know what, it's gonna fucking suck, and you're gonna get kicked in the teeth and in the balls or wherever else. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like that—that's part of it. You can't—you can't get around that. And if you're—if you don't have that desire, you know, or maybe that even kind of comes back to our hope discussion. You know, it's like like there, there you have to have something that will get you past the inevitable. Um hardships that you're going to face. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something about being an adult is that mm-hmm. you start to recognize like, you know, I'm, I'm, I, there is something that is, I'm going to face that I might not be ready for, but I'm ready for it and I'm not ready for it, but I'm ready to encounter it. I'm ready to not be ready. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah. So, I mean, but again, but then 18 doesn't mean that person is, is, has that mindset. It's sort of, you know, it's, it it is somewhat arbitrary, a 17 year old versus a 19 year old, you know, 17 year old might be more ready for something like that than a 19 year old. Hmm. Um, right. But at the same time, there's also an aspect, sorry. Like, I think, you know, we also choose 18 in a sense of like, you should be ready by now. Life should have prepared you for making these decisions by now. And, and if, if you're, you're not, we're going to thrust you. We're going to thrust you because you need to, you need to get out of your crib and, and, mm. and you're going to have to, you're going to have to learn these lessons the hard way, the hard way. <clears throat> it's interesting. And I think that's, I mean, it kind of sucks, you know, but yeah. like, you know, you can't, you know, the government can't take care of you your whole entire life, you know? Hmm. So I want, I want to try to make a case that a life lived truthfully is a life lived hopefully. I also want to make a religious observation because this is another thing that, um, that came to me that made sense maybe for the first time ever. And so maybe I'll start there. Um, yeah. Okay. So to live truthfully is to live hopefully. And I think what that means is that when you are truthful, you live in a way that's oriented toward hope because well let me make the example of like imagine you two people begin a new relationship and they really like one another and you know the man may say or maybe maybe the woman asks the man you know like what do you see happening here what do you want Mm -hmm. and the man may say well i hope that we get married have children live happily ever after for the rest of our lives. And that's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. In some sense, there's like an archetypal hope there. It's like, I want this because this has sort of been implicitly set up as one of the best things that you could do with your life. Mm -hmm. In another sense, he's responding directly to her. There's this attraction. There's this desire. Where does that attraction and desire end? You don't exactly know. And so you cast this vision. And then... 
you know, let's say they go out a few more times. Whether or not he actually hopes for that is going to become evident in the way that he behaves. Mm. It's like, do you, do you treat this woman as if she is the woman you're going to grow old and die with? Mm. You know, and she may get annoyed and say, you know, you didn't text me good morning. Like she's not, she's not saying that because good morning texts are super important. Mm -hmm. She's saying that because it's like, if you really hope for the thing that you told me you hoped for, Mm -hmm. then I would know because you would do this. Mm -hmm. And it's not that the doing of that exact thing is what is important. It's Mm -hmm. that when you hope for something, it aligns your life toward it and it's evident in the behavior. And so maybe he doesn't text good morning but instead does something else, which indicates that alignment, Mm -hmm. you know, then all of a sudden the good morning text doesn't matter. What matters is, are we moving toward the hope? Mm -hmm. So, and there's something in that, that's like, once a hope is professed in a relationship like that, everything becomes a test. Hmm. Everything becomes, are you truthful or were you lying? Hmm. Um, and the degree to which people sort of feel it that way, I think has to do a lot with just different personalities and some people are, sort of a little bit more fine with fast and loose. And some people are like really sensitive Mm -hmm. to that stuff. Um, you know, and if, well, so you can imagine that that doesn't go very well, but neither of the people want to end the relationship. Mm -hmm. So what do they do? Well, you sit down and you talk about it and you say, well, you know, what is it that's making you feel insecure? Well, you don't text me good morning. Okay. I will text you good morning every morning. You set up this rule hmm. and no one feels very good about it, yeah. but at least it keeps us moving. Mm-hmm. It keeps us attached. Whereas if the behavior was evidence of the hope, then you wouldn't need the rule. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now the religious observation, like it's always um, been curious to me how in the Bible, in the Old Testament, the Jews lived under an extraordinary set of rules. It's like thousands of rules, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, check me on that. Correct me. Yeah. Um, And all of them seem very sort of arbitrary and asinine. And I think in a sense they were. Mm Mm-hmm. And then the New Testament happens, Jesus comes, essentially tears down the temple and frees everyone from the rules. Mm-hmm. And I always thought like, why is that? The rules were super important to God. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus comes and now they're not important anymore. You know, and some of the New Testament actually address, addresses this, like Paul addresses this in, I don't know, one of the letters. Mm-hmm. You know, so you're, so you're saved. Should you not live by the rules anymore? And it never really made sense to me, but as I sort of think through this idea of hope and hope being evidenced in behavior that indicates belief, which actually manifests the, the success of the thing that is hoped for. And then I see that that actually resolves all the decisions that need to be made between you and the end of hope. So if you truthfully hope the decisions that you need to make moving toward that become very clear mm-hmm. and you don't need to live by rules 
rules which are inherently arbitrary because what it is that you should do becomes evident. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so if you are living truthfully, then you must be living in hope of something. Mm. And so to, just to bring that back full circle to the Old and New Testament, it's like I think what actually happened was, you know, God of the Old Testament was this very um, sort of amorphous he who has no name. It's like, who is God? Mm-hmm. No one's ever seen him. He's a burning bush. He's a pile of crap, you know, like he doesn't exist or he does exist or whatever. It's like half the time he comes down and wants everybody murdered. Half the time he comes down and like does miracles, you know, um, what is this? What are we aiming at? Mm-hmm. We don't know. And so we have all these rules, all these arbitrary rules <clears throat> because we don't know what we're aiming at. And then Jesus comes and he is, well, there's this quote I wrote down. Um, I'll get to it in a second. I think what Jesus is in the New Testament is the rep, the representation of the ultimate ideal. Mm. It is hope manifest. Mm. And, and I want to say, like, you don't have to be Christian to understand what I'm saying. You don't have to believe any of this to be true to understand what I'm saying. I'm laying out a framework that there is something that we all hope for. And you could say simply that I want to be the best person I could be. Well, I think the exploration of, of the New Testament of who Jesus was, was an attempt to describe who that best person might be abstracted out across all of culture and humanity. Mm. And once that's made manifest here in flesh and blood on earth in a way that has a name and a face and actions which can be described and touched and felt and interacted with in the real world. Now we have hope. Mm. And once you have hope, you have no need for rules because the decisions become clear. Damn. Yeah. It's like demonstration. Like there's something that in that when you were saying that like hope demonstrated and it's like, and then you become hope demonstrated for others. I think that's something that, again, the example of Jesus is that sort of like he he is an exemplar of hope manifested and 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 worked out in front of people and in relationship that you could sort of emulate and see. So the more people that are walking that walking that out and are sort of like again, that's like uh, I, I think Christianity does a really good job of this. Is sort of like to be like Christ or to, to manifest the spirit of Christ is that sort of manifesting that hope here on earth. You know, I think that's something that is, mm-hmm. you know, the people that move things like, you know, a Martin Luther King or something like that, he manifested that hope, you know, here. And it's like, it inspires and draws people to something bigger and greater, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. I mean, it's like, yeah, like, Oh shoot. There's a, there's a, he who has the most hope has the most influence. Hmm. I heard someone say that. I don't, I don't know where that comes from, but, but that makes a lot of sense. It's like, if you can, if you can project something into the future and walk in that projection and manifest that hope, you have so much influence on those people around you because if you're manifesting that hope, then other people want to walk beside you 
or also mm. like also manifest for themselves what that is, or even just come alongside you and, and walk with you in that hope, you know? Well, maybe that is getting at the relationship between hope and truth that I was mm-hmm. trying to touch on a second ago, mm-hmm. because if you see, well, so, and here's that quote from earlier, this is from Nietzsche. He said, every great man is an actor of his own ideal. Mm. Mm. And actually I would maybe modify that and just say, every man is an actor of his own ideal. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you see the way that someone acts and behaves, <clears throat> you also see in a sense what it is that they hope for. Huh. And so yeah. when someone who has a great hope comes along, it isn't that they tell you what they hope for. Mm-hmm. That's inspiring to you. It's like your point about MLK. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, he did say his hopes very convincingly. You know, what is it? I dream of a, a place where man is judged not by the color of his skin, by the, but by the content of his character. Mm-hmm. Those words we actually remember not because they're good words. We remember them because he embodied that. Mm. He acted that out in his life. Yeah. And that has the effect of inspiring people to want to be around you. Because you see that and you go... Not only is that a good thing to hope for, but you're acting as if that is true, which means it must be true mm-hmm. somehow in a way that draws us to them. Mm. You know what? The, you know what the biggest? Uh, uh, I'm gonna say. Correct me. I'm gonna kind of throw something out here. I think the one thing that dissuades people from hope is that it's also your biggest judge. Like you hope for something and you come up short. It's like, cause you judge yourself by that. Mm-hmm. Like I hope I'm projecting into the future, this ideal, this, this something I'm, I'm heading towards. And when you don't attain that, it's like, it also then becomes your judge. And so it can do one of two things. One, it can crush you and you can be like, ah, oh, it's not worth it. You know? Or two, it's sort of like, or maybe three, <laughs> you know, one part is, is like, is like, maybe there's something I'm not getting right here and I need to reorient myself and the hope that I have because I have my hope in the wrong place or that it's a judge in the way that you, it's, it's, it's sort of like a humility thing and saying, wow, I hope for something that I can never attain, but I know the road towards what I'm hoping for will make me a better man or a better woman or whatever it might be. And so like, even in my falling short or coming short of whatever that hope is, it actually has a transformative uh, effect on me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, instead of it being uh, a deterrent from following that hope, it actually is a, a, a an orienting yourself and purifying yourself in a religious way mm-hmm. towards that hope. <clears throat> That's pretty esoteric in a lot of this. <laughs> well, I'm trying to decide whether or not to bring this mm-hmm. back to our simple example. I mean, it makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. So you using the example of going to bed on time so that you can get up on time. Mm-hmm. As soon as you sort of set that up as a goal, an ideal. Ideally, I will get up at 7.30, Mm -hmm. right? 
well, that's your judge now. Mm. Do you or don't you get up at 730? Yeah. If you don't, you've been judged. Mm-hmm. If you do, you've been judged. You've been either you've, you've been judged and found wanting or judged and found successful, righteous, righteous. Yeah. And so you may say, and so back to the, I think I made this statement earlier that, that hope is hope is the waiting space between sacrifice and manifestation. Mm-hmm. So I sacrifice a bunch of things to go to bed at 11 so that I can get up at seven 30, but between 11 and seven 30, that ideal is a judge. Mm. Was it worth sacrificing everything I did? What if I sacrificed all the things that I sacrificed in order to go to bed at 11 and I still don't get up at seven 30. Mm. My sacrifice wasn't worth it. Wasn't a good sacrifice. Mm-hmm. You know what? It's probably not even worth getting up at seven 30. I could probably just get up at 7.45, get one more thing done tonight. And then all of a sudden, you know, you've lost hope. Mm-hmm. You are no longer patiently waiting for the thing that you have aligned your life toward to manifest as true. Whereas... Well, you said something else too about the, because I wanted to say something about, you know, back to the idea that if you accomplish this goal, let's say two months in a row, Mm -hmm. you start to see that what you hoped for wasn't getting up at 730. It was something larger and broader. And now it kind of doesn't matter as much whether or not you are successful at the rules that you set up. It's almost like that's a goal too, because like you set out a hope, but you know that it's almost more of a gateway than it is a destination and destination. It's like hope leads to more hope. Mm, that's great. You know, it's that's like, a good point. It's, it's sort of like, I hope I can at least accomplish this. And then when you get there and you start accomplishing it, you start to find that you actually have more desires and more things. You, you're, it opens your eyes to more possibilities. And so your hope actually grows. It's not just about waking up at 730. Now it's oh, like, oh, yeah. Like, and maybe even maturity grows in that mm-hmm. because you say, oh, actually, that wasn't what I was really hoping for. Now mm-hmm. I just have better understanding in language and I am able to identify what it is that I was actually hoping for. Mm-hmm. In fact, I really want to wake up at 6.30 so I have time to like have my coffee and maybe read a little bit. <laughs> yeah, what if it's not just to work on time? What if it's to work on time in a great mood? Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. how could I accomplish that? Mm-hmm. But I think there is something to really value. Hope begets hope. Hope begets hope, damn it. That's good. I think there's something to really value is like, you know, I think Peterson says this really well. It's like, and I always get this backwards, but what would, what could you do that you would do? And I think that is so, it's such a great starting place. Cause like, if you start saying like, I hope that I am, you know, employee of the year, it's like, it's your first day. You didn't even show up on time. <laughs> let's, let's start somewhere. Like what would you do that you could do? Okay. Well, I'm going to show up on time, you know? And it's like, you accomplish that. It's like, okay, well maybe by the end of the year you are employee of the year or whatever it might be, you know, or you achieve certain goals, whatever goals you have or whatever, you know, but I think it is important to like 
set realistic goals and to, and, but your hope always needs to have a little bit of unrealistic aspects to it. seems like, well, it just depends. Just kind of where you are really. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's up? Well, yeah, that seems really true with everything that we just laid out. I mean, mm-hmm. <clears throat> if you take the, the sort of ignorant wandering the desert version of hope. It's like, it looks like rules. Mm -hmm. It looks arbitrary. It looks, what was it you said a second ago? I don't know. Oh, well, whatever it was you said, that's (laughs) what it looks like. It was amazing. (laughs) Um, But then the other side of it is this new Testament idea where it's like, what is it that you hope for? Jesus Christ. Well, who is, it's like, Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, <laughs> you know, it's, it's like an, it's like a curse word and a blessing. Right. Yeah, time. exactly. For, for the reason that it's uh, so unattainable that it could be both in some <laughs> sense. So what I is think it? that is the best explanation of Jesus being like both savior and a curse word. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Jesus Christ. And yeah. it's like Jesus Christ. <laughs> and, maybe, and maybe the lesson in, from both of those examples is what, what do we ultimately hope for? Mm-hmm. We don't know. We have more capacity to hope than we do to describe what it is that we hope for. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, why we can never get away with some idea. Get a, di- we can't dismiss with the idea of heaven. Mm. Because there's something outside of our own ability to understand and articulate, which is evidenced by our own ability to hope. Mm. And heaven is sort of like that symbolic idea of what is the greatest and biggest hope, mm-hmm. you know, the most unattainable hope. Mm-hmm. It's like, that is heaven. You know, it's like, right. It's like, even like where, where again, lambs lay with lions. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's like it's manifesting what, what heaven that on that earth. Mean? Who even cares? Uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. But that's the thing. We always, we need that. We need that thing that's always outside of our capability and our understanding and that's where hope lies and it's like there's the adjusting as we move towards that right yeah there's the dispensing with the rules Mm -hmm. and the establishment of new rules Mm -hmm. all in the service of what we hope for it's like we said last time like you know sabbath is made for man but man not not man for the sabbath it's Mm -hmm. sort of like you know, we do have these rules that are meant to serve us and help us to attain something greater, you know, it's like, Mm. but they're meant to serve us, you know, even like, you know, the, the constitution and, um, the bill of rights, like they're meant to serve us, you know, it's like our, even our politicians, like they're meant to serve us, the people they're supposed to be, the president's supposed to be the servant of us. And, you know, that's something that, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to project a hope and a future that is that we're looking forward to moving into. I'd make a modification to that. Go for it. I think they're supposed to articulate the hope uh, and the vision of the people for the future. Mm-hmm. They're not supposed to give it. They're supposed to articulate, articulate it. I think that's a good distinction. Yeah. yeah. Should we, uh, should we wrap it up or what are you thinking? 
So I think we could probably go on on this for a little <clears> while. I have no idea how long we've been going. I don't either. Uh, well, I think we should, probably should. I think that's yeah. a good place to end it. I mean, just kind of like, I mean, if you, if you guys have made it this far, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're, what we're doing right now is we're, we're like Matt and I don't, we're working this out as we're going. And I think that's something like if, if you've kind of heard our conversation, it's like Matt will kind of move into something and sort of try to articulate it. And then I'll come on top of that and say like, Hey, here's something. And it's like, there's this kind of back and forth as far as like we're trying to articulate something that we see that we don't really understand, but I've also experienced some aspects of this. And I think that's, I, th- I, I, I know that was the feeling I, I was kind of having as we we're, we we're discussing like this exploration into like, what is hope, how to move forward. But there's also these blocks. What are these blocks and, and how do we, how do we get around this? It's like, well, how is this also, um, what is like sort of like the uh, discontented version of this, but perverse aspect of like hope and and um, <clears throat> yeah, I don't know, I don't know where I'm going with this, but <clears throat> anyway, though, as 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 we were talking, I definitely was seeing like this sort of like uh, uh, exploration into sort of the unknown of like what is hope and how we can how we can understand like what it is you know so yeah but (laughs) well cheers to the exploration (laughs) that's the shores baby (laughs) (laughs) michael just winked at me (laughs) that was good oh and took his headphones off we're done we're done folks (laughs) Love you all out there. Thanks for listening. <laughs>